Today, as we celebrate 244th birthday of our nation, I want us to learn about the July 4th of uh, uh, the July 4th of Israel in the story of David. What was the July Fourth? Is being recorded for Israel. That's when David became the king of an entire Israel and conquered Jerusalem and established it as a capital of Israel. David's triumph for Jerusalem was a more than ancient military victory. It has not only a long-lasting impact for Israel, but also ongoing significance for all of us. As American Declaration of Independence triggered and shaped many people and many peoples and nations in the world for the hope of liberty and life and pursuit of happiness, Jerusalem became the most important city in the Bible and inspiring symbolism of hope and homecoming in the Bible. By the way, the name Jerusalem appears more than 800 times in the scripture. So today I want us to study the significance of David's capture of Jerusalem in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1 to 12. And here we will ask four questions. First question, when did David conquer Jerusalem? Second is why? Third is how did he conquer it? And fourth one is what? So we're going to study context of conquest and reason and the method and then conclusion or result, okay? So let's look at the first question, which is about the context. When did David conquer the Jerusalem? For that, let me read us Second uh, uh, Samuel chapter 5, verse 1 to 6. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, when Saul was king over us, you are the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became a king and they reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. In Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem. Now, David marched to Jerusalem right after he was recognized by all tribes of Israel as the leaders of uh, 11 uh, northern tribes who used to follow Saul and his family came to Hebron today and finally anointed David as their king. So here we must make a very careful uh, observation. Uh, let's review quickly. In chapter 2, we learned that after the death of Saul, Abner, the co commander of Saul's army, made Ishibosheth, surviving son of Saul, to be the king of Israel, and civil war broke out. And uh, Ishibosheth, according to 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, he reigned two years. He reigned two years. And then chapter 3, we saw Abner change his mind and he wanted to hand it over the kingdom to David. But he was murdered by Joab, the David's commander-in-chief. And then chapter 4, we saw Ishibosheth was killed by, murdered by two traitors. And then 
we come to today, chapter 5. And here is the uh, 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 you know, gap that we need, to, we need to recognize. Did you hear earlier that Ishibosheth reigned only two and a half years in Menahem, according to 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10? Uh, two years. And then, you know, uh, David reigned in Hebron for seven and a half years. So, there is a gap of uh, five years and a half. What happened? Bible doesn't tell us what happened during the time. You know, the elders of Israel didn't come to David immediately after the death of Ishibosheth, their king. Somehow, it took them five more years, five and a half years to come to David. Point is, David waited for a long time. And here, let us not forget this historical and biblical fact that God took over 20 plus years for David to become king of Israel. God took time, his time to prepare and train his king. So if you look at the chronology of David, I summarize it. You know, according to the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 16, when Samuel anointed David, David was like a 10 to 12 years preteen age, very much child. That's why when Samuel asked, you know, Jesse, that a, is that all son you have? And he said, oh, we have a one child left. And, but he's tending a ship because he was not an adult-like, okay? And then chapter 16, when uh, chapter 16, David served the Saul's court, court as a musician when Saul was tormented by the evil spirit. And then chapter you know, 17, we saw David courageously fighting and killing Goliath. And we assumed that David was age of 15 or 16. And then, and then David served the Saul's army as a commander of his army. And then eventually married to Saul's daughter, Michal, at the, probably mid-20s. So he, we don't know exactly, but close to 10, plus, 10 years, David served in Saul's army. And then Saul became a very envious and the jealousy broke out and David became an exile in the wilderness, starting from 1 Samuel chapter 21 for several years. Now, point that I want to make is this. Oftentimes we kind of uh, uh, gloss over. No king in Israel's history had waited 20 plus years is a throne after he was anointed and received God's promise. David was the only king in Israel's history who was trained in trials and persecutions for such a long time. This is the first significance of David's capture of Jerusalem, that is, an unprecedented training of God. David is a proof of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 and 7. And Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 and 7 says this, Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as a discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? So Hebrew writer said, If God loves you as his children, God will mature you discipline you, train you, and it takes time. Someone said, if God answers your prayer, 
God is increasing your faith. But if God doesn't, God is actually increasing your patience and training your trust. When God doesn't answer, God is training us in our faith and patience and trust. And somebody also said this. I think this person must be like some had some school experience. So when you're going through something hard and wonder where God is, remember the teacher is always silent during a test. <laughs> you like this quote? You know, I've been actually a, a test proctor. And, uh, but actually, I told my students, uh, when you are not clear about some of the questions, come and talk to me. And oftentimes, I gave them more than clarification. You know, some of them think too much. I said, what do you, you know, I kind of give them an idea which one to, you know, check. But anyway, so not, God is not completely silent. But, you know, when you go through the test, usually the uh, tester is silent, right? But he is there. You know, this coming week, I heard that some of our medical school students are taking step two. I don't know what that is, but that every time when medical students say step one, step two, they, their, their life is a totally in different zone. And then, you know, somebody that in our Zoom service right now is about to take a board certification exam too this week, right? So, you know, they've been working, I mean, they've been studying hard, but, you know, they have no complaint about their heart test. Why? Being a medical doctor requires a great deal of knowledge and skill. It takes expertise and effort. So the greater task is, the harder and longer the training is. So I want to encourage everybody. You know, I said this last time, but I, I, I think we need to remember from time to time, and it's not bad for me to repeat this, because house church ministry is not easy. It'll take time. So be, the, you know, be patient and be prayerful. And as God transforms us, the house church ministry will take place. Now, let me go to the second question. Why did David take the Jerusalem? Why did David make a Jerusalem as a new capital out of so many towns and so many choices he had in the land of Israel? Verse 6 that the king and his men marched to Jerusalem and attacked Jebusite who lived there. And then Jebusite said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and lame can ward you off. They thought David cannot get in here. Now, an IV translation said Jerusalem was populated by people named Jebusite who lived there. Original Hebrew text actually said Jebusite, comma, the inhabitants of the land. Inhabitants of the land. This phrase, inhabitants of the land, refers to people whom God promised to drive out before Israelite, and also required, God required the Israelite to expel. But it has been the failure of a faithfulness on the part of an Israelite that they didn't drive out all the inhabitants of the land. So if you look at the Judges 120 and 21, it talks, it says this. If you look at the Judges 1, 20 and 21, as a Moses promised, Hebron was given to Caleb. Do you remember you know, Joshua's you know, best friend? Who drove, them, who drove from it the three sons of Anak. Anak is a giant, the, whatever, the ancient giants. Benjamite, however, did not drive out 
Jebusite who were living in Jerusalem to this day. Jebusite lived there with a Benjamite. So, today David's action against Jerusalem was actually motivated by this ancient promise of God concerning the land. So David was doing what Israel had failed to do. And at the same time, he was acting as an agent, of the, agent for the fulfillment of God's promise. That's the second significance of David in Jerusalem, that is unfinished business. Jerusalem was an unfinished mission, and the Jebusites were undefeated enemy. And David today was reclaiming God's promise that he made for Abraham and Moses. While the Israelites were complacent about Jebusite and then somehow they took the coexistence as a practical compromise, David was ushering God's will and reign by returning to unfinished business. How about us? Are we complacent and take our status, current status for granted? Or are we constantly seeking to fulfill God's calling completely? The reason we are committed to house church ministry is ultimately to fulfill biblical church instead of you know, falling into cultural Christianity that we have seen around us. It's more like a American cultural Christianity, which is based on religious consumerism. It's all about me meeting my, my, my need or my, 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 my whatever, my, you know, you know, find a church that has a program to meet the you know, needs and desires of my family. We are not, a, you know, our church for us is not about us. It's about God. It's a fulfilling will of God. And we believe when we obey God, God will ultimately fulfill our desire far more than we can ever imagine. So we have an unbusy, you know, uh, this uh, house church ministry. It's an unfinished business. And you and I, we are committed to this unfinished business that Bible calls us to. So we want for us to be God's crucial instrument rather than my consumer interest. Now, also I want today on this Our Nation's birthday, I want us to recognize that we are living in a very critical stage in American history. We must remember a very important fact. Do you know which country in the world has a longer-standing democracy? Guess which country in the world has a longer-standing, longest-running democracy? That's us. United States of America is the longest-running democratic country in the world. Often we forget the reality that the vast majority of Democracies in the world are less than 50 years old. Some of them lose democracy and struggle all over. The accurate example is actually Venezuela. Do you know Venezuela was the first democratic country in the South America? They toppled the you know, dictatorship in the 1950s. But now look at them. After Chavez and Maduro, they're back into the you know, dictatorship. We fail to recognize that the fact that in the grand scheme of uh, human history, democracy or democratic tradition is a relatively new concept. 
Because you, you and I born in this modern period and you heard so much about the democratic countries, you think it is something you know, uh, universal for a long time? Think again, it is a very relatively new concept. And uh, as we have seen in our nation's history, democracy is constantly under threat. Every generation has its own fight for democracy. Yes, we are most blessed and powerful country in the world and everyone, not just the poor people, smart people, and ambitious people, you know, they all want to come to United States of America, even to Texas. But let us not be complacent about our number one status in the world and the leader of a free world. It's not permanent. Just like that, you know, that condominium collapsed in the over just a few, you know, just a quick moment. It's a long time to build, it's short time to you know, demolish or collapse. And I want us to recognize the two serious challenges we have in our country's history. One is external, one is internal. External threat, I say with all due respect, is the CCP, Chinese Communist Party, which just celebrated its centennial anniversary last week. According to economists, China's GDP will surpass ours in current pace in the next 10, 12 years. And once China became, if that happened, you know, guess what? We will lose many allies in the free world. And they will side, they will side with China. And then the world will become darker and more dangerous than ever. So some modern historians, they say we are living in the second Cold War. The first Cold War was against the Soviet Union. It was more like a military in a struggle. But second Cold War is much more subtle and harder because CCP is a clever, more clever than Soviet Union. They appropriated the capitalism within the communism. They are market savvy. So we really need to pray that God to control the CCP and then bring us some change to China. For, for the, not just for us, for the sake of Chinese people too. So that's the external threat that we, we're really facing next decade. Is a, is a, this current decade is a very critical in our country's future. We also have an internal uh, uh, threat. As someone said, nations do not die from invasion. Most nations die from internal rottenness. We have a serious internal issues. We have a so-called internal cold war, not just politically, but theologically and even spiritually. The divide we saw in the Washington DC is a widespread in our media, journalism, even Christian denominations, and even church pews. The fact that we are critical about the critical race theory reveals how lost we are as a conscientious and intellectually honest people. Anyone who speaks about these kind of issues receive immediate attacks from either side or both sides. In the disguise of a culture war, Christians, especially evangelical Christians, somehow engage more political power game or power play than loving our neighbors as Christ commanded us. I'm going to come back to you know, this issue of a critical race theory next Sunday. And I want to ask you to pray for me and pray for all of us to hear the facts and the truth. The reason I give this prayer 
uh, announcement is to show you that I'm not speaking on these issues lightly, emotional or even subjectively. They are in my heart, in mind, in my readings, in my researches, and also my prayers. I take a political reflection of the gospel most seriously. Now, let's see the another reason and significance of Jerusalem. That is, combination of a why and how David conquered Jerusalem. So, there was a very practical reason why Israelites did not capture Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a has a natural landscape for perfect defense. The three sides of the Jerusalem were surrounded by steep cliff, which made it impregnable. So, if you look at the verse 6, when David and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusite, the inhabitants of the land, they said to David, You will not get in here. Even blind and lame can ward you off. And they thought David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which was a city of David. This is the first time we saw name Zion in the Bible. And the name Zion, and Zion is another name for Jerusalem. And Zion, or Zion in Hebrew, simply means fortress. So Jerusalem was a, the Zion, the fortress, invincible, impregnable you know, fortress. That's why the rest of Israelites up to now left Jerusalem alone. So why did David want this difficult, dangerous fortress for his capital? That's the combination of the second reason as well as the third significance of Jerusalem. That is, David wanted to unify Israel with a new capital. Okay? So look at the map. We have a map. If you look at the map, yes, if you look at the map on the bottom, sorry, I don't know whether you can see clearly, that is actually, you know, east of that city, that is a Hebron. That's where David served as a king of Judah last seven and a half years. And then now David became a king of the entire, you know, 12 tribes of Israel. So David needed a capital further north because Hebron is a far south. You know, the location matters, right? Usually it's good for capital to be in the, especially in the central because so that he can dispatch and defend his country, you know, his, defend his country, right? So he needed a capital which be more centrally located, which could be easily, you know, uh, uh, reach out to the northern tribe. And uh, Jerusalem was a perfect city because it was uh, virtually located in the border of uh, Judah and Benjamin. Benjamin means the name of tribe of uh, Saul or the you know, representative of the rest of Israel. And so second you know, uh, uh, arrow is uh, Jerusalem. Previously, Saul, he reigned at, uh, uh, in the place called uh, Menahem, which is uh, north. Do you see Menahem? In the, uh, the third far, yes, that's a Menahem. Yes. So David, in order to unify the country, he chose this neutral, central city. Okay? So, this taking this city means to unify the country. That is the third significance. Taking this city as a capital, you know, 
will definitely uh, uh, not seem to favor either one of the southern tribe, Judah, or northern tribes, the rest of Israel. A historian says, this move of David was not just a transitioning, transitioning into a new capital, but actually transforming the tribal structure of Israel into nation structure with a central government. And this, uh, this new capital eventually paved the way for Israel to become an empire. So do you see David transformed Israel from tribal kingdom to nation and to nation to empire. Now, let's look at how David conquered Jerusalem. So Jebusites, they said that uh, this has been conquered and your effort is futile. Even lame and blind can defend us. So there's no chance. You have no chance. And then verse 8, look at the verse 8. On that day, David has said, anyone who conquered the Jebusite will have to use a water shaft to reach those lame and blind. So David called you know, Jebusite the lame and blind. Who are David's army? That is why they say blind and lame will not enter the palace. David then took up the residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the terraces inward. So, the way David conquered Jerusalem has uh, two things. One, David has intelligence about Jerusalem. David said his only weak spot was a water shaft. And uh, we have actually archaeological proof. So we ha I have a, a diagram of uh, this water shaft called the Warren Shaft because uh, that's the name of archaeologists in the uh, 19th century that discovered this you know, old shaft. So if you look at the, uh, this uh, you know, water, sh water shaft, it actually, uh, it's a whole thing, that this uh, tunnel is about uh, 41 meters or 135 feet. And the shaft descends about uh, 42 feet or 13 meters into the waters of uh, Gihon, Gihon Springs. So they use, uh, you know, they just drop the whatever bucket with a rope and then, you know, draw the water there. And David said, we can use that. That's the only, you know, place to you, you know, we can climb, whoever climbed that, and then we can make a surprise attack inside. So two things. David had an intelligence or strategy. And also David needed, and David had, warriors to execute his plan. And we don't know which one of David's you know, men climbed the water shaft and conquered the Zion. And once again, many great things are done by unsung heroes. And when you get to heaven, we'll find this David's warrior. But here is one thing that I, I learned. Kingdom of God is always advances with the wisdom of a good leader and then courage and obedience of unsung heroes. Yes. That's how always kingdom of God advances. Now, some people misunderstand that uh, when David said the blind and the lame cannot enter my palace, this is not a David's prejudice against you know, disabled people. You know, David was basically calling the Jebusite the, you know, the blind and lame in quotation. Okay? 
And then later in the 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 24, we saw that David actually welcomed uh, Mephibosheth, the lame son of uh, Jonathan, into his palace much more than that adopted him as his son. So David has uh, no prejudice against you know, uh, disabled people, so don't take it literally, okay? This is, in the, this is a kind of metaphor, it's expressions. So one thing is clear is we don't know exactly how they be conquered. Just you know, some idea there was a you know, tunnel and David had intelligence and his men took advantage of it. In detail, it's all in our imagination. But the most important part of today's story comes to a conclusion. That's in verse 10 to 12. So let's pay, this is a conclusion of David's conquest of Jerusalem. And David became more and more powerful because the Lord, God Almighty, was with him. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent envoys to David along with the cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. Then David knew the Lord has established him as a king over Israel, had exalted his kingdom for the sake of God's people, Israel. Now, verse 10 is a summary statement of David's remarkable conquest of Jerusalem, almost a mission impossible success kind of things. He became more and more powerful because what? The Lord God Almighty was with him. You know, NIV is really poor on this. You know, NIV did a smooth translation, but they missed a key point here. Because the Lord God Almighty is the, uh, not the original uh, Hebrew word. Hebrew word, such as ESB, actually translates that David became a greater and greater for the Lord, comma, God of hosts was with him. God of the host. And the host refers to heavenly powers that are in God's disposal. So Hebrew word for the host is a sabah, which means army. And the New American Standard Bible translate actually Lord, God of armies was with him. Okay? So the writer of the book of Samuel tells us the Real conqueror in David's story is God. God is a real king, majesty, and the power. He was a God who, you know, God's power and God's army that really gave David a victory. It was a Yahweh's presence and guidance in David's life made him stronger and successful. And that's the fourth and final significance of Jerusalem. That is, Jerusalem's ultimate sign is God. It points out to God. Jerusalem is the ultimate sign of God and His reign. And again, God, the reason the writer expresses God as the, the Lord, uh, uh, what is that? The, yeah, Lord, the God of uh, armies or hosts, is to show the real king in this story is God. It's not David, it's God. Now, what happened? Verse 11 said, 
here I'm the king of Tyre, sent uh, not just, uh, you know, uh, his ambassadors to thank, you know, congratulate David. He sent it out, this massive gifts of a cedar lot and carpenters and stonemasons. And they built a palace for David, free. Why? King of Tyre was so impressed by David's success. And guess what? He made a royal tribute to David. This is a significant. King of Tyre was a king of a Phoenician kingdom. This is not an ordinary small you know, tribal kingdom like Ammonite and Moabite and all these you know, other tribes in the area. Phoenicians is a, you know, is a formidable kingdom. I talked about Phoenicians several times, right? right? You guys remember that it was Phoenicians that colonized the entire Mediterranean you know, uh, you know, area like a Carthage, right? So when Phoenician king recognized David's success, it means it's like an old power recognized a new power in the region. And he said, David, you are powerful. I don't want to be a uh, you know, bad relationship with you. I want to be your friend. And uh, to show my sincerity, you know, I gave the best. We are known for the great building materials and the great, you know, engineers and architects and they let me build a house for you. you know? And then most important conclusion, verse 12. What is that? Then, when the king of Tyre made a royal tribute, then they be knew what Lord has established him as a king over Israel, had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. That's the most important phrase today. David knew it was God who gave him a success. Amen? You know, if you look at the David story up to now, you've seen in 2 Samuel up to now, You've seen there is a lies and betrayals and murder and ambition and treachery, all kinds of political appeals. However, at the end, David knew it was not Abner, it was not Joab, it was not the uh, two, you know, the traitors who killed uh, 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 Ishbosheth, the Rechab and Bana, who established David's kingdom. Even though it's a young Amalekite in chapter 1 who brought the soul's crown to David, David knew it was God who gave him a crown, God who gave him a conquest, God who gave him a success, God who gave him a Jerusalem, and God who made a king of Tyre to recognize David as the king of Israel and formidable power. And David knew his success and strength came from God. And much more, what did he say? God gave exalted David for the sake of God's people, Israel. David knew his success and strength. It's not his own invention. It's a God's gift. It has a purpose for God's people. This reminds me of a... Uh, uh, Paul's uh, praise in the Romans chapter 11, verse 36, when Paul said, From God and through God, for God 
are all glories. That's what David is confessing. David will say, praise the Lord. All I have, this Jerusalem, the city of David, ultimately belong to God. You know the word Jerusalem? Today the key word is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is actually two words. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Yeru, actually in, in Hebrew, pronounces Yeru. Yeru, Salem. Shalem. Shalem. Yeru actually means a flow. Flow. It's like a flow of water in a river. Or flow actually means a flow, flowing of a finger. Finger pointing out something that flow from the finger. And the shalom, as you know, is a shalom. This peace, right? Completeness or well-being. So Jerusalem or Jerusalem, Jerusalem, combined together, put together, something like a pointing the way to complete peace. Completeness or complete peace. On that note, the Jerusalem means for us God and His reign. And the amazing thing, guess what the last time we see Jerusalem? That's Revelation chapter 21. So let me close our sermon with Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw new heaven and new earth. The first heaven and first earth has passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And as I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe out every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things have passed away. Why did the Bible describe the God's ultimate reign on earth as a new Jerusalem? Because the impossible enemy is defeated. Just as David conquered the impossible fortress, invincible fortress, God will ultimately conquer the death and evil and pain and suffering in New Jerusalem. And that's what God calls us. And that's where we are advancing. All the strengths and success that God gave, we are using for this New Jerusalem. Hallelujah! On this day of a national birth, let us remember. We are, even though we are citizens of the uh, United States of America, but our ultimate citizenship is that a uh, kingdom of God and Jerusalem. We belong to New Jerusalem. Let's march to New Jerusalem with the faith and trust in God. Let's pray.